Good evening. A looming national railroad strike, the first in 30 years. An indigenous woman in Canada says she was attacked by a white mob near Toronto. Because I'm not wearing a bra, she came up to me and attacked me. And the monkeypox controversy, how to message a disease. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. The United States, still buffeted by record high inflation, is facing a one-two punch as news of higher-than-expected price increases hammers Wall Street. Part of that problem could be Casey Jones, the engineer, and all the other jobs needed to run a major freight railroad, delivering a trillion and a half tons of cargo a year across North America. On Friday, 90,000 freight railroad workers and 12 unions could silence the horns, warning of an approaching freight in small towns across the United States, with a strike for the first time since a two-day strike in June 1992, halted by an act of Congress that moved with rare speed, according to the Los Angeles Times. The law, still in effect, requires mandatory arbitration in disputes between railroads and their employees. The workers are represented by Railroad Workers United, a cross-craft union open to any railroad workers in North America who are not supervisors or managers. The unions say working conditions have become intolerable, including working 12-hour shifts without notice and being penalized for calling in sick. The unions claim the freight industry is raking in record profits and increasing productivity on the backs of workers. A cooling-off period ends this Friday, and after three years of fruitless negotiations, the unions have been polled and are willing to support a strike. If the crucial rail links to the battered economy are cut, industry warns of resulting shortages of everything from fertilizer to trucking, sending a dispute to a Democrat-controlled White House and Congress. Nevertheless, Railroad Workers Union organizer Ron Kamenko tells the news the stakes are too high to back down. They made record profits right through the pandemic. How are they doing this? By cutting, massively cutting the workforce, the payroll, cutting maintenance on cars and locomotives and elsewhere, and then jacking up rates on the shippers and providing incredibly poor service. So we got every shipping group in the United States, I believe, has now filed complaints with the Surface Transportation Board about the horrible service that they have been getting. The rail industry is moving less freight than it did 16 years ago. Meanwhile, the trucking industry has increased by 40 percent. The nation's economy has grown by leaps and bounds. Why in the hell something that's so efficient, the most efficient means of transportation, So what happens on Friday? The potential for a national rail strike. How has this come to this point? So bargaining began under the Railway Labor Act when Section 6 notices are exchanged between the rail carriers and the unions. So on November 1st of 2019, this latest round of bargaining, those Section 6 notices were exchanged. No progress is made. The union leadership reports quarter after quarter that there is absolutely no movement in bargaining and the union leadership, all 12, say that there is absolutely no tentative agreement possible to put before the members for a ratification vote. As a result, it works its way through the Railway Labor Act, which is a long convoluted process of mediation, proffers of arbitration and so forth. Mediation has failed. There's no hope to get the two parties together for an agreement. And then it goes to what's called a presidential emergency board. The presidential emergency board recommended one of two things, that the organization simply withdraw the proposal 
or B, that the union simply continued to negotiate, even though that had borne no fruit for two and a half years. And so this is what could lead to a national strike, because a handful of very, very wealthy Fortune 500 corporations who have been making record profits for 25 years and who aren't doing their job for the nation, they're not moving more freight, they're actually moving less, that these corporations refuse to pay a day of sick time, that they refuse to bargain over attendance policies that would be reasonable and effective, and they refuse to talk about work schedules and hours of work. There won't necessarily be a strike if the union and the carrier and I should say unions and carriers, can come to agreement to extend the cooling off period. Right now we're under a 30-day federally mandated cooling off period. Those 30 days expire on Friday. So the union and the carrier have the ability to extend that deadline. Will they? Who knows? And then how long that strike will last is anybody's guess because Congress under the Railway Labor Act has the prerogative to promulgate legislation that would be immediately signed, one would assume, by the president that orders us back to work. What they did 30 years ago, they remand the unions and the carriers to binding arbitration. So we go back to work under the terms and conditions of the existing agreement. The three-panel arbitration board could award the carrier's last best final offer or the union's last best final offer. And neither party really would be very happy if the arbitration board were to award the other party's uh, last best and final offer. So it gives huge incentive to then compromise on the issues. Railroad Workers Union organizer Ron Kamiko. The Department of Labor has urged parties to settle. Secretary Martin J. Walsh is pressuring both sides to reach an agreement, and the administration says it's held dozens of calls with the industry and unions. And police in Ottawa, Canada, have charged a 37-year-old woman with assault and mischief following a disturbing incident captured on video. It's since gone viral on social media. Video of the incident taken by the accuser captures part of a verbal altercation. The alleged attacker lunges at the woman, apparently for not wearing a bra. The woman recorded the assault and tweeted the video. I'm releasing her name, Laura Gagnon, because she's gone public on social media about the encounter. The video shows the accused approaching the victim and appearing to strike her. Others can be heard telling the victim to stop filming as the altercation continues. Then the attacker is seen using her bicycle aggressively while approaching the victim again, and it appears trying to strike her a second time. The arrested person's name hasn't been released. In her tweet, Gagnon says the following, quote, Yesterday evening I was attacked by a white woman who was upset I was wearing no bra. She adds, I've never experienced a white mob chasing me, and it's the scariest thing that's ever happened in my life. The next clip is disturbing. Return in two minutes to hear the rest of the story if you are disturbed by such things. Algonquin territory and tell people not to wear a bra. Hey? You're body shaming? Don't fuck me, bitch. Don't me. Was calm. No, 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 no. I'm trying to document her. She assaulted me. And I want her information because I would like to file a police report. Hey, all my followers. Stop filming! Can you stop filming? Stop! 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 St
me and all these people are like because I'm not wearing a bra she came up to me and attacked me Gagnon can be heard in the video questioning why an indigenous woman would be the target of body shaming on unceded Algonquin territory. According to the Ottawa Citizen, unceded Algonquin territory means to Canada's Algonquin people, we still have our connection to the land. We didn't give it to a settler coming here and claiming the land. And in more news, fears are mounting of more bloodshed between Armenia and Azerbaijan after border clashes killed more than 150 troops on both sides. The two countries traded accusation over who is to blame today as thousands of protesters took to the streets of Armenia's capital accusing Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan of betraying his country by trying to appease Azerbaijan. The former Soviet republics have been locked in a decades-long conflict over a region known as Nagorno-Karabakh, a part of Azerbaijan held by Armenia since 1994. Azerbaijan has been reclaiming the lost territory in a series of wars that began two years ago. The last conflict ended with a Russian-brokered deal. That deal wasn't far from the mind of Secretary of State Antony Blinken at a news conference yesterday. We'd seen the outbreak of, of hostilities again, something that is in no one's interest. It's not in the interest of the people of Azerbaijan. It's not in the interest of the people of Armenia. It's certainly not in the interest of the larger region. I spoke to both, urged them to do everything possible to pull back from any conflict and to get back to talking about building a lasting peace between their countries. We have our special envoy in the region, whether uh, Russia tries in some fashion to stir the pot, to create a distraction, uh, from Ukraine is something that uh, we're always concerned about. But if Russia uh, can actually use its own influence for good, which is to calm the waters, end the violence, and urge people to uh, engage in good faith on building peace, that would be a positive thing. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Meanwhile, today, Armenia's leader told lawmakers he's asked Russia for military support under a friendship treaty between the countries and also requested assistance from the Collective Security Treaty Organization. The organization consists of six former Soviet republics, now nations, pledging group action if any member is attacked, similar to NATO's Article 5. And according to the United Nations, floods in Pakistan last month, said to be influenced by climate change, affected 33 million people killing 1,300, including 400 children. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres described the flooding as a monsoon on steroids and a climate catastrophe. He laid the blame directly on climate change. Emissions are rising as people die in floods 
and famines. And this is insanity. This is collective <coughs> suicide. From Pakistan, I'm issuing a global appeal. Stop the madness. End the war with nature. Invest in renewable energy now. No country deserves this fate, but particularly no countries like Pakistan that have done almost nothing to contribute to global warming. Pakistan and other developing countries, from the Horn of Africa to the Sahel, are paying a horrific price for the intransigence of big emitters that continue to bet on fossil fuels in the face of science, common sense, and basic human decency. Loss and damage from the climate crisis is not a future event. It is happening now, all around us. And I urge governments to address this issue at COP27 with the seriousness it deserves. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, the floods emphasized Pakistan's disparity in health services between rural and urban areas. The World Health Organization says more than 1,400 health facilities were damaged, with more than 400 totally destroyed. Following the flooding, the WHO report says are ongoing outbreaks of COVID-19, acute diarrhea, and diseases from typhoid to polio, with growing fears of a malaria outbreak. And after a 90-minute-long telephone call today with Russian President Vladimir Putin, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says Putin is still convinced the invasion of Ukraine was a good idea, and there was no indication that new attitudes are emerging, said the German leader at a news conference. Scholz urged Putin to seek a diplomatic solution based on a ceasefire, a complete withdrawal of Russian forces, and respect for the territorial integrity and sovereignty of the Ukraine. Meanwhile, at the Pentagon, a spokesperson for the Defense Department, Brigadier General Pat Ryder, says the United States wasn't surprised by Ukraine's successful counteroffensive near Kharkiv, but another country, he says, was. It's not surprising to us that they have pushed uh, as quickly as they have. They've also, uh, again, shown a remarkable ability to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves on the battlefield. Uh, and the current counteroffensive in Kharkiv uh, is no exception to that. I think if anyone was surprised, uh, just based on the reports that we've seen in terms of the, the Russian military's response, it was probably the Russians. And more news from the Pentagon. A report released by the Anti-Defamation League last week claims a data leak of information on 38,000 members of the right-wing paramilitary group known as the Oath Keepers. The report claims the breach included 117 active-duty soldiers, 11 reservists, and 31 civilian employees. The ADL added about 1 in 10 on the list had military experience. Pentagon spokesperson General Ryder was cagey when asked if Oath Keepers are considered proscribed extremists by the military when asked about the ADL report. Yeah, so I don't I don't have any specifics on uh, the particular incident that you're describing other than to say, you know, DOD policy is clear. You cannot be an active member of a extremist group. Uh, and certainly uh, where there are indications of that, you know, the services uh, as appropriate will investigate those. And so um, in in regards to those particular members, I'd I'd refer you to the services to see, you know, what, what if any status is on those individuals. Is there a consensus on which groups are considered extremist groups? Or would like, for example, is the Oath Keepers considered an extremist group by the 
Department of Defense? I think DOD policy uh, is pretty clear on what constitutes an extremist group. And so any group that meets that definition uh, would fall within those boundaries. The report also claims 81 members of the group either hold or are running for public office at all levels of government, mostly school boards and sheriff's offices. And another 373 Oath Keepers were discovered working in law enforcement, including 10 chiefs of police and 11 sheriffs. And in more military news, the nominee to head up the next Chief of Space Operations, known as the Space Force, Lieutenant General Bradley Salzman said on Capitol Hill this week that China is the main threat to the United States in space. The most immediate threat, in my opinion, is the pace with which our strategic challengers uh, first and foremost, the Chinese are aggressively pursuing capabilities that can disrupt, degrade, and ultimately even destroy our satellite capabilities uh, and disrupt our ground uh, infrastructure. Um, they, are, they have watched how we perform joint force operations. They know how critical the U.S. how critical U.S. space capabilities are to the joint force. They've learned from that, and they recognize that it is an asymmetric advantage of theirs to go after our space capabilities and deny them to the joint force. And they've invested heavily and demonstrated capabilities that, that uh, can deny us this. So it is one of my earliest priorities to make sure that we're on track to, to build and field uh, effective capabilities and then train the guardians to operate in a contested domain so that we can counter this activity by our strategic competitors. The Senate Armed Services Committee is examining Salzman's promotion from Deputy Chief of Space Operations to replace his retiring superior, General John Raymond. The Space Force is the newest branch of the military established by former President Donald Trump in 2019. Yesterday, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham introduced a bill banning abortions across the United States after 15 weeks. So here's what I think we will be doing about the unborn. We will introduce legislation, I, along with a lot of my colleagues, uh, to basically get America in a position at the federal level I think is fairly consistent with the rest of the world. And I picked 15 weeks, which is a little longer than Belgium, Germany, and Spain, longer than France, Denmark, and Norway, now, why did I do that? Because I feel comfortable at 15 weeks, the science tells us that the nerve endings are developed to the point that the unborn child feels pain. Usually, Graham's anti-abortion bills united Republicans and even get a few Democratic votes. But this time, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell tossed water on the idea. Well, I think every Republican senator running this year in these contested races has an answer as to how they feel about the issue. And it may be different in different states. So I leave it up to our candidates who are quite capable of handling this issue to determine for them what their response is. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer took the floor to say that the total ban on abortion is the GOP's long game. Republicans are twisting themselves into pretzels, trying to explain why they want nationwide abortion bans when they said they'd leave it up to the states. Even the senior senator from South Carolina said a few months ago, quote, that if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, it would mean that, quote, every state will decide if abortion is legal on, and on what terms. 
And yet, here he is, introducing a bill to restrict abortions nationally. For the hard right, this has never been about states' rights. This has never been about letting Texas choose its own path while California takes another. No. For MAGA Republicans, this has always been about making abortion illegal everywhere. We are seeing it play out across the country. It's chilling, chilling to the bone. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer. On Tuesday, President Joe Biden celebrated the passage of his Inflation Reduction Act, along with singer-songwriter James Taylor, despite stubbornly high inflation of more than 8%, even as gas prices fell, food and housing costs continued to remain high. Nevertheless, Biden claimed victory for making gains against everyone's favorite enemy, the big pharmaceutical companies. His legislation will cap prescription drug costs at $2,000 out-of-pocket annually for Medicare recipients. We pay more for our prescription drugs than any developed nation in the world. Let me say that again. In America, we pay more for prescription drugs than any developed nation in the world. And there's no rhyme or reason to that. For years, so many of us have been trying to fix this problem. But for years, Big Pharma blocked Medicare from negotiating lower drug practices, prices. But not this year. Not this year. This year, the American people won, and Big Pharma lost. U.S. stock indices fell sharply on the inflation report, with the benchmark S&P 500 down more than 4.3% yesterday. Closer to home. New York health officials today expanded eligibility for the monkeypox vaccine with plans to distribute 3,840 vials sent to the state by the federal government. The vaccine is being made available to people who are at risk of becoming infected, not just people who were likely infected. Meanwhile, the Daily Beast says the threat of monkeypox has put a crimp in New York's members-only gay sex clubs and by-invitation-only parties. A new CDC report says gay men are proceeding with more caution. One-time hookups, the report says, account for 50% of daily monkeypox virus transmission. In related news, division over strategies, messaging prevention of monkeypox in New York City is roiling the health department. The director of surveillance for the department's Bureau of Communicable Disease is epidemiologist Dr. Don Weiss. He says he's now a whistleblower who claims the health department has punished him for speaking out about his concerns over the official monkeypox prevention message. A lawyer for the Government Accountability Project, a not-for-profit that helps represent whistleblowers, is David Side. He says Dr. Weiss is facing retaliation for telling an inconvenient truth. Once he alerted the commissioner to the fact that there was dangerous messaging, public messaging that was being issued regarding how folks should approach monkeypox in terms of behavior, he was greeted with silence from the commissioner out of frustration. He went to the New York Times, alerted them to the issue. The Times published a, a story about the issue, and within days of the story's publication, he was effectively fired, although he's still on the payroll. He was transferred to what I like to call the equivalent of uh, bureaucratic Siberia. And so he has gone from leading 
being the leading epidemiologist, or one, certainly one of the leading epidemiologists uh, in New York City for the past 20 plus years, to preparing PowerPoint slides on maternal health in a remote office of the Department of Health. The reason offered was that it was an urgent need on the Department of Health that needed to be filled, which is obviously patently, which is patently absurd. He's basically saying they are doing a disservice to the LGBTQ plus community by downplaying the sexual nature of this transmission and its focus in the gay community. That's exactly right. His concern was that there's clearly a concern of stigmatization of this illness within the LBGT community, given that the current high levels of transmission are within that community. There has been and is sensitivity to how to communicate on the issue. What is most concerning to Dr. Wise was that the department refused to characterize the infection as a sexually transmitted disease. Within the messaging that was issued by the department, there were best practices that should and shouldn't be followed. If you have monkeypox or exposed to people with monkeypox, here's what you should do. Monkeypox is very transmissible within specific parameters, and the guidance that Dr. Weiss objected to stated, if you have monkeypox and have lesions on your body, you can continue to have sexual contact provided that you put bandages to cover up the lesion. That wasn't simply bad practice. That was endangering practice because monkeypox can be transmitted through skin-to-skin contact. And the idea that, well, just covering up a sore will solve the issue and life can go on was flat-out false. The medical community agrees it was flat-out false. They concurred with Dr. Weiss. And Dr. Weiss asked the department to remove that passage from the communications. It is illegal to spread a sexually transmitted disease, and that includes chlamydia, that includes herpes, anything. You can go to prison for a felony to know you have a disease and spread it to somebody else. That's the law. And presumably, if someone were to be charged with intentionally Uh, infecting someone with monkeypox, which is a felony, their defense would be along the lines of, why are you going after me? After all, I just, I followed Department of Health guidance. I covered up those bandages. I can't be guilty of intentionally inflicting monkeypox on anyone. You know, sexual transmission laws like that and could be used to ban gay sex or sex in general. From a medical perspective, the issues are and this time, for monkeypox, it's best to temporarily abstain from having sex, particularly anonymous sex, in large groups. David Seid is attorney with the Government Accountability Project, which defends whistleblowers using state and federal laws throughout the United States. Dr. Don Weiss is an epidemiologist with the Health Department. And finally, a federal jury convicted R. Kelly today on six counts of child pornography and sex abuse in his hometown of Chicago, 
after 11 hours of deliberation. Another blow to a singer who used to be one of the biggest R&B stars in the world. The jury acquitted him of a fourth pornography count and conspiracy to obstruct justice in an earlier trial. His two co-defendants were found not guilty on all charges. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. The news is produced, written, and anchored by myself, Paul DiRienzo. This program is available on SoundCloud.com. Search the news with Paul DiRienzo or go to PaulDiRienzo.com. You can also find us on numerous servers, including Apple Podcasts. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>